Happy Mother's Day. Would you do me a favor, moms, I don't want to embarrass you too much, but if you don't mind standing where you are so we can pray for you, just stand right where you are. If you are a mom, just stand on up and we are thankful for you. Yeah, give them a... Let's pray. Father, thank you for these women. Thank you for their role in each of our lives. God, we, uh, we admit that we are who we are today because of their sacrifice, because of their love, because of their unending mercy. Father, we thank you for each one of them. And, and Father, obviously, none of our moms are perfect, but we are grateful and thankful for the role that you have used them for in our lives. We ask that you would bless them today, that you would give us as children understanding as to, to how to honor them well. And Father, may we do it without reservation. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, moms. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so take your Bibles. Go to Genesis chapter, uh, I'll say 6, because that's kind of the middle. We're going to be running all over the place, um, starting in chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. So you should be nervous about your reservations for Mother's Day brunch. Um, but I'm going to assume some knowledge on this because, I'm going to assume some knowledge on you because if you were to ask the average person what their top three favorite Bible stories were, the story we're going to look at today most certainly uh, ends up on that list, the story of Noah and his ark. And that's a little odd if you really try to wrestle with what the story of Noah and the ark is really about. It's a little odd that it would be our favorite kid's story when we think about the fact that God sent a flood to kill every human. And yet we, we, we kind of trivialize it and make it, it's a happy children's story. So here, I found this, this wonderful video that will help uh, picture, I'm just going to show a portion of it, but this will help you understand of how goofy that thought is that we make this a great children's story. Here we go, you ready? Hey kids! So kids, Noah and all his family were on the ark with the animals. But do you know who wasn't on the ark? The unrighteous! That's right! <laughs> Can you point out the thousands of people drowning? Good job! Whoa, what happened? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry Carl. I guess I'm just a little confused. <laughs> How many of you, let's be honest, a moment of, of integrity and honesty here. How many of you either painted your nursery or decorated your nursery with items from Noah and his ark? And I will tell you, first and foremost, both my hands are up. How about you? Yep, amen, okay. You might as well have just taken the four horsemen of the apocalypse put that on the wall, maybe a mobile with that over the top of your children's crib to look at the whole time. It's a very disturbing story, but I think oftentimes we've, we've overlooked and missed the main points. What I want to do is kind of run through some of the background, some of the, the setup for what happened in the flood story here in Noah. And then I want to focus as we go through on a couple of sub-lessons of what I think are minor lessons that we really should pay attention to but aren't the main point. And then I want to land on the one main point. And I will say it this way. The main point is that in God's mercy and grace... He has laid down his weapons against us. And that's where we're headed. All right, so, so how do we get to the flood? So you start off, uh, as you know, Adam and Eve 
sinful, willful rebellion against God. Cain then murders his brother Abel. God calls him on it and, and declares that he will. Now Cain will forever wander, never have a home. And Cain's first response is, it's not fair. It's not fair that I would be punished for murdering um, Abel. Because if you do this to me, God, you know what might happen? I might be murdered. He's so angry about what's going to happen to him, he has forgotten what he actually did to Abel. He's obsessed with the cost to himself and sorry for himself and not sorry for his sin. And yet God, in his gracious mercy, sets a mark on Cain, uh, a mark of his protection, and Cain goes, goes on his way. And from that moment, we begin to see the progression and the regression of culture. Look at chapter 4 with me. Chapter 4, verse 20. We see some of the progression of culture that begins to flow. Chapter 4, verse 20. Ada bore Jabel. Jabel was the father of the nomadic herdsmen. So here you have this advanced culture of uh, animal husbandry, of, of farming. Continue, verse 21. His brother was named Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the flute. So now you have music being introduced into culture. And then it continues. Zillah bore Tubalcane, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. So now tools of iron, tools of bronze. So, so as, as the culture is progressing after this, this, this sinful event between Cain and Abel, the fall of Adam and Eve, culture is continuing to progress. But you also see culture, culture regressing, unraveling, if you will, um, from the effects of sin. As it's, as everything is just twisted um, by sin. In chapter 5, Chapter 5, you, you get this phrase that is introduced a, a number of times for the first time in Scripture, but you see it throughout. It's the common phrase that ties all these verses together, and it's the phrase, then he died. So before this moment, before this, this time in history, that death was not a reality, but now, because of Adam and Eve's sin, death had tr- certainly entered into the culture. Let me, let me go back, go back to chapter 4. There's going to be a lot of flipping around, I'm not kidding. <laughs> chapter 4. We see the unraveling of, of, of culture happen as well in chapter 4, verse 19. Told this man, Lamech takes two wives. So polygamy is introduced early. And you know at the end of chapter 2, we are told very clearly by God that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. The idea, the intent, and the instruction from God is that marriage was to be marked by a man and a woman leaving their father and mother, cleaving to one another, becoming one flesh. And here, polygamy being introduced becomes almost normative throughout the Old Testament. But if you note and pay close attention as you read Scripture and you see the the issue of polygamy come up, it is never painted in a positive light. What happens is polygamy leads to the oppression, even diminishes the value that God has placed on women. And that's part of the sinful effect of the fall. You continue to see culture unraveling. Chapter 4, verse 23, Lemek says this to his wives. Hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. You see the continued streak of Cain's violence in his genealogy. And one of his descendants, Lamech, says that he killed a man for wounding him, a young man for striking him. What you have to understand is the word wounding and striking 
literally means a bruise or a scratch. It's very insignificant. And then, and then you look at the fact that Lemek is bragging that this, this young man is the one he killed. And the word young man, man is used for a boy. An adolescent at best. And so you here you have this violent cry of Lamech saying and bragging that if a child scratches him, he's going to take his head off without apology. See the violence of the culture? The violence of the culture continues. Chapter 6, verse 11. It says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with wickedness. That word wickedness can also be injustice. It can be violence. It's spreading. It's not just Lemek. It's spreading among the culture. And, and I did, <laughs> I wanted to skip this, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Then you get to this, this most popular issue of Genesis chapter 6 before the flood, and it's verses 1 and 2. Let me read those to you. Chapter 6, verse 1. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any that they chose as wives for themselves. Okay, so what in the world is that talking about? There's a number of... um, Commentators, theologians alike, all these people who are really much smarter than I am, and they lay out all these different options. And as far as I can see it, there really are only two legitimate options to help us understand who the sons of God are here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. And those two options are this. First, they're the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth, which was laid out in chapter 5 for us in that genealogy. Or, two, they're fallen angels. All right, so let me, let me say this. The godly line of Seth marries the ungodly line of Cain, and God is looking at that, and it grieves his heart to see how foolish they would be to do that. That's one option. The other option is that these sons of God, these, these fallen angels, demons as they were, um, came and they, they um, possessed the bodies of noble men and high-ranking officials, and, and then they uh, engaged in these sexual impulses with these other women. Um, sons of God in other places in Scripture refer to angels, so that's a possibility. Uh, you go to the New Testament and you see how demons would possess people, cause them to do things, so it's possible I will say this and move on. The point is, this ain't good. Just just land there. This is not good news. You can tell it's not good news, or God news, as I said. In verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. They are corrupt. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw the human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And he was deeply grieved. The the author, Moses, writing here in Genesis 6, says every thought, every impulse, every intention of the mind was only evil continually. Every time, over and over and over again, mankind has this bent towards sin to take God's design, to take God's capacities, and to twist them based on their own selfish desires. We don't see that today, do we? One of the things that struck me this time was when you're, 
you're hearing this description, you're understanding how violently opposed these people are to God himself. Moses, the author, gives us a peek at one of the emotions of God and highlights this emotion. And, and I would think that the emotion that the author would want to highlight is anger. But instead, the, the emotion that the author highlights the end of verse 6 is that God was deeply grieved. Think about that for a moment. Wrestle in your head to, to define what it means to be deeply grieved. That same word, deeply grieved, is used in Isaiah 54 to speak about an abandoned wife. For the Lord has called you like a wife who has been deserted and wounded in spirit, deeply grieved. Unfortunately, that's not something we're unaware of or haven't experienced or seen in people we know and love the heartache that comes from being abandoned like that. That's the hollow, sick feeling that Moses tells us is in the heart of God as he considers the rebellion of his people against him. Think about it this way. It's similar, it's different, but it's similar to the mom who has given their child every imaginable chance to succeed has given the tools for them to live with integrity, to to make good choices, and yet they find a way to serve their own selfishness time and time again. And the expectation of mom would be they would certainly make a better choice, and yet they refuse to. So the feeling of mom isn't anger. The feeling of mom is disappointment. Sadness, this hollow, sick feeling of grief. Guys, that's how God feels about our sin. Our sin affects the heart of God. Yes, your sin dishonors Him. It takes from His glory. And He will have none of that. But, but even beyond that, He is grieved because He knows your sin damages you much like the mom knows that that child's choices ultimately will only damage them. And because our sin affects the heart of God, we see in verse 7 that God is going to act. He says, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth. He is going to act. He's, He's going to wipe out wickedness. He's going to wipe out wickedness so that God can dwell in peace with humanity. You understand that, right? When you go back to to verse 3, he says, I will not, my spirit will not remain with them because they they are corrupt. We, We continue to be in conflict. I will not let this go on. We're going to live in peace. And God says, I will deal with wickedness so that I can live in peace with humanity. There's a significant problem. All he has to work with is wicked. So what's he going to do? Verse 8. Genesis chapter 6. Noah found favor with the Lord. He found grace in the eyes of God. So what was so special about Noah? Nothing. Nothing. He simply believed 
What God said was fully surrendered to God. Okay, but what came first? I mean, there's, if you think I'm joking, just Google, why did Noah find grace in God's eyes? There are so many discussions out there. What came first? Was it God showed grace to Noah, so then Noah obeyed? Or was it that Noah obeyed, so God then showed grace? So the answer is, yep. I think what really perfectly describes Noah for us, look at uh, chapter 6, verse 22. It says, Noah did this, which is everything that God had commanded him. That's the picture that we're supposed to have of Noah. Think about the things that Noah had to believe. Think about the things that that Noah had to do. Think about what it meant for Noah to be fully surrendered to God. I I love um, Eugene Peterson's um, interpretation of Hebrews 11.7. He says this about Noah. By faith, Noah built a ship in the middle of dry land. Stop there. What? Noah built a ship in the middle of dry land. He was warned about something he couldn't see. And he acted on what he was told. See, that's a man who walks with God. That's a man who who is fully surrendered to God. How crazy did those things have to seem to the people who lived at the same time with Noah and watched what he was doing? And not only that, it it wasn't like they went to bed one night, there was no boat, they woke up the next night, Noah built a boat. It took them 100 years to build the thing. So, So imagine how difficult that walk had to continue to be. I mean, Noah's faith wasn't proved by the fact that when God said, build a boat, he said, yes. That, that wasn't the picture of Noah's faith. What was the picture of Noah's faith is that he continued the process for a hundred years. And he built this thing 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet. It had three decks. It had a door. I mean, this is a significant project. God told him to do exactly that, and he did. God told him to gather two of every unclean animal and seven pairs of the clean animals and get them into the boat. I think, and this is, I'm I'm oversimplifying, but I think probably the most shocking and overwhelming piece of Noah's obedience comes later after the boat is done being built. And God says, get in the boat. It's not raining. You want me to get on the boat with all those animals? What? Get on the boat. And Noah takes his family, gets in the boat, and stays in the boat for seven days before it starts to rain. How many days are you making it? I'm not even making it a day. I'll just be honest. I'm outside. It's like when the tornado warnings go off. It's kind of the same, it's the same idea. But then the rain started. And this is the part I assume you know. It rained for 40 days, 40 nights. It stopped raining after about 150 days. The boat has been rocking on top of the water, which is above the mountains. And, and, and Noah sends a raven out. It never comes back because it couldn't find a place to land. And then he sends a dove out. And the dove returns. After seven days, he sends a dove out. The dove returns with a fig leaf in its, brand, in its mouth. And then, then he... he um, Sends the dove out after seven days, and it doesn't come back because it found a place to to land. He waits another few days and then finally gets out of the boat. And that's really a terrible telling of the story. But, And I know what questions come up when you hear the story. So was the flood the whole world or just the known world? Can we actually find where the ark ended up? How do you fit that many animals 
in one boat. Just as an aside, studies have been done. You could fit 35,000 animals in a boat that size. I would not want to be on that boat. Which actually brings the next question. How long did it take Noah to clean that thing? And, and, and how do you know which dove is a boy dove and which one is a girl dove? And why did you let cats on? I mean, there's all these very specific questions you can answer, but that's not the point of the story here. Let me give you just a couple of smaller points before I camp on the main point. First, smaller point. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. It says this. I'll start in verse 8. God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all the wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that, that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. Just a, a small minor point that I want to make sure I establish here. It's very clear. As a follower of Jesus Christ and a believer in the the creator God who created everything that we see, we have a responsibility that includes creation. The covenant of God included creation. You and I have a job to love, to enjoy, to cultivate, to keep the same uh, responsibilities that were given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, to work the fields, to work the gardens. I praise God for those of you who are in our farms right now. I praise God for those of you who understand what it is to steward the responsibility of keeping God's creation well. As believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot simply, it'll take care of itself. No. That is disobedience to God who has called us to care for it, to keep it, and to steward it well. That's just a small point. I'll move on. Chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. God says human life is so valuable that there is nothing on earth that can equal it. Only another human life can. Genesis 9-6 speaks specifically about capital punishment. I'm not going to get into the ins and outs. I would certainly say that there is a place for capital punishment. I would also say that we had better make sure that we are enacting capital punishment on those who are in fact guilty. A rush to judgment and a rush to consequences makes us guilty. But this is talking about way more than just capital punishment. This is a direct statement from God about how pro-life he actually is. It's a direct statement from God as how we, as believers, should live. So that's why, certainly, as believers, we are to care for and advocate for the unborn. This is why we, as believers, should be those leading the charge and caring for the hurting, for the sick. Not because they provide great value to us, but because in God's eyes, they're of great value. 
This is why followers of Jesus Christ must be the most intensely aggressive in speaking up for the oppressed. No matter what race, what economic status, what age, what ethnicity, what level of intelligence, what level of development, no matter what country, what religion, what political party. It doesn't matter if you agree with them or disagree with them or if you're accused by them. Whether they're good people based on your definition or the definition of other people, whether they are those who'd be labeled as troubled, broken, and making bad decisions, no matter how strongly they agree or disagree with us, we are called to value all life. That's why those who have lived hard lives, who come from difficult stories, whose lives have been marred by sin, whether it's theirs or somebody else's. That's why they should find themselves most comfortable right here. Because as we look at them, we value them, because we understand the unspeakable joy that is to be undeservedly loved without limits. So are you broken? Do you have a history of wrong decisions and choices. Glad you're here, because you're just like me. But for the grace of God, I have a microphone. Doesn't mean I got it all right. Just means I get to air my dirty laundry out here in front of you a little bit more than you get to air yours just means that God has called me to stand before you and tell you I'm a broken man who has been forgiven much. And at the foot of the cross, there's hope. There's peace. No matter what's in your past. No matter how hard it might be, no matter how difficult it might be, no matter how guilty you may feel, you are loved. And as you find yourself among those who call themselves U-towners, you'll continually be loved. Because we're going to point to the one who loved us when we didn't deserve it. And that's just a minor point. The main point of this story is that in the flood, we see a picture of God's faithful grace. Now, it's important to understand that when the flood is done, nothing's really changed. So, so God is going to judge wickedness so he can dwell in peace with people, right? Well, look at chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 21. Noah's built an altar. He's brought an offering. God is responding to that offering. He is pleased with the aroma of the offering. This is a good thing. But listen to what God says as he evaluates humanity. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. No, nothing, nothing's changed. You, you might expect God in that moment to smell the aroma of that offering and be like, well, I won't have to do that again because they've learned their lesson. But instead, he says, I'll do something different, but these people are still wicked. It is still in them. Is it? Are they still, are they still wicked? Did you read the end of the story of Noah? Dude gets drunk and naked. Nothing good happens when you're drunk and naked. Right? And going back to the children's thing, I checked... That is not depicted on the mural out there, praise God. 
It's probably not in your precious moments Bible either. (laughs) But God walks through and he tells us the rest of the story of Noah, who just again gets in his own way. And it's not to mock Noah, it's not to embarrass Noah. It's to remind us that this guy was the father and the grandfather of the recreation, the new creation. And even in that, God said, you still have a problem. So now what? How will God destroy wickedness so he could live at peace with humanity at the same time? How will that happen? Well, God points to Noah. He focuses them ahead to what will be their real salvation. Look at me in Genesis chapter 9, verse 13. God says to Noah, I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The bow is a picture of God's faithful grace. Um, I, 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 and you guys know this about me already if you've been here for any time. I love pictures. I think in pictures, I talk in pictures, everything's a picture for me. So I'm thankful that God uses pictures to communicate some of the most important things in his word. Baptism. Baptism is a great picture. It's a picture of the one who is standing in the water, who is professing to all of us who are around them, I, I want to be counted as Christ. I want to be identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the picture is, as they go back, the death of Jesus. As they go below the water, the burial of Jesus. And as they come up, the resurrection of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of what we have in our salvation, identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The picture of communion or the Lord's Supper. It's a beautiful picture, a picture of the the broken body of Jesus Christ, broken for our sins, the, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which was spilled for our sins. And then the picture, the greater picture of that, looking forward to the future banquet with him. I love pictures. And here, God says, let me give you another picture. And he sets his bow in the clouds, and that bow in the clouds reminds us of his faithful grace towards us. Why? Catch this, please. The Old Testament Genesis is written in Hebrew. Biblical Hebrew does not have a word for rainbow. So the word here in Genesis 9.13, where it says God placed his bow in the clouds, the word here is the word for a weapon that fires arrows. What God is saying to Noah is that he's hanging up his bow. He's holstering his weapon. Spurgeon, my favorite preacher of all time, points points out the fact that if you look at the shape of the rainbow, that bow is no longer pointed in our direction. Instead, if you were to put arrows in it and pull the string back and let them go, those arrows would shoot straight into the heart of heaven. God left us a picture so we would know one day he will accomplish salvation by taking the arrows of his own wrath on himself. And his rainbow became this universal sign of God's forgiveness and covenantal mercy. A promise to us of this one who will come, the better Noah, named Jesus Christ, who will bring mercy, rescuing you from your sinful rebellion, who will bring grace, giving you his righteousness, who who will bring hope, providing a life that will never end. And you can look to Jesus for rescue. God sent him his only son so that if you would believe in him, you'll be saved. But in that rainbow, 
not only do we see grace, but we see a picture of how faithful God is to us in that grace. Read with me. Look at verse 15. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. Please don't miss who looks at the rainbow to remember the covenant. God does. God does. The covenant is entirely one-sided. The rainbow appears in the sky with with absolutely no response required from us. Actually, there's not not even a response possible from us. They're, They're regular reminders of a reality that will never change. No matter what we do, God's always faithful. He always keeps his promise. And the greatest promise he ever fulfilled, we got to hear about from the lips of angels as they sang the most powerful song of all time. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord. The greatest promise ever fulfilled was fulfilled when Emmanuel was born. When God showed up for your sins and for mine. As you look at the rainbow, remember, God is faithful and gracious in ways we can't even begin to imagine. Father, thank you for the goodness of your word. Thank you for the precious promises of your word. Thank you that you can be trusted, that you have proven how trustworthy you are over and over again, time and time again. God, I thank you that we can come before you and know full well that in Christ our sins have been forgiven. So so for the one who might be here this morning who has never placed their hope and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone, Father, I pray in the quietness of this moment as they sit in their seat that their gaze would fall on heaven and that their voice would cry out to Jesus to save them from their sins. Father, I thank you that there is no other requirement other than faith. Thank you that in your grace you pursue. So the ones here are being pursued by you. So today I pray they would yield. Father, I ask that every single one of us would be reminded of what we've been forgiven of. That we would look forward to to seeing you again. Father, may our eyes always fall on Jesus and Jesus alone. It's in his wonderful, matchless, precious name I pray. Amen.